everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey Lemon Duck Knockering. <laughs> you might wonder what that means, but we'll get into that in just a little bit as we dive into the quarter two 2021 Internet Security Report from the WatchGuard Threat Lab. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and roll on in. So it is the end of a quarter, which means this week we get to talk about our favorite WatchGuard Threat Lab initiative that occurs every single quarter, and that is our latest internet security report, which at the time that you're listening to this was just published, probably, crap, my in-the-head math isn't going to be accurate, four or five days ago, <laughs> relatively yeah. recently. By the way, can we just pause on the end of the quarter? That means it's like October, November, December holiday time frame of 20. Where the heck did 2020 go or 2021? My gosh, <laughs> that in itself shows. I, I think it's pandemic time, but my goodness, I can't believe we're already arriving to Q4. Yeah, you're absolutely right on that. And man, I was, I mean, I was sure hoping this year was going to be very different from last year, but I feel like we is this year is just a bit of a slightly improved version of last year in terms of, okay, we've kind of gotten used to all this crap that's going on. But anyways, here we are still doing security, still stopping hackers, and now we still get to talk about it. <laughs> uh, so uh, if you're not familiar with our internet security report, if you've missed out on our previous 20 podcasts on this topic. Um, hopefully there's some of you. We want new listeners all the time. So hopefully a few haven't heard of it before. Yep. Uh, real quick overview on it. Uh, basically, we get threat intelligence from our customer networks that have opted into sharing that with us all around the world. If you're a Firebox administrator, you've got a little checkbox during the setup and also just under the general settings of your box. It says send device feedback to WatchGuard. Um, and along with a lot of telemetry that helps product management figure out what services or features folks are using and where we need to focus our development time on, we also get threat intelligence anytime one of these security services on the appliance triggers and blocks a threat. Um, that could be anything from the three layers of anti-malware, so signature-based gateway antivirus, machine learning, um, intelligent AV, or our cloud sandbox APT blocker. Uh, as well as the Intrusion Prevention Service, uh, DNS Watch through our DNS Watch uh, service as well. So DNS Firewalling, rather. Um, and then also, thanks to the, uh, I guess it's not even recent anymore, thanks to our previous acquisition of Panda and integrations within WatchGuard now with EPDR, we get a whole bunch of endpoint data as well uh, that we've been able to include in this report. Basically, every quarter we go through, tabulate the previous three months' worth of data, try and identify what the ongoing trends are in malware and network attacks and endpoint detections, and then come back with actual tips and tricks on how to defend against them. Um, so this quarter, I guess last quarter, which is quarter two of 2021, the one that we just published now. Yeah. Unfortunately, we can't tell you what's happening right now, or I guess it's the end of now. We'll be able to tell you tomorrow if we could write the report fast enough. But the, the re report we released was for last quarter. Yep. Uh, but still very relevant of the threat landscape that we're seeing. And as we go through this on the podcast, we tend to basically follow along with the report and pull out a few of like the main takeaways that we think are most important for you. We don't have time to go through every single one of the 39 pages of this report. 
Um, so if you want more details on anything in here, definitely check out the full report. Uh, if you're like Corey and you just don't have time to read 39 pages, uh, you could check out the executive summary as well, which has all the most important bullets out of there as well. Um, it's important because I wrote it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, as opposed to us that wrote the other 39 pages. The actual meat, <laughs> the good stuff, the, the analysis. Although to be fair, I, you, you and I started this report, so I certainly wrote those sections long ago. <laughs> yep. But anyways, without any further stalling, let's go ahead and take a look at what the threat landscape looked like for quarter two of this year and some of the main takeaways that we have from it. And to start at the top, we focus on what we call the Firebox feed. So this is, again, all that threat intel we get from our Firebox security appliances that have opted in. Uh, this includes the malware, the network attacks, and DNS watch. And starting with malware, like on the whole, perimeter detections were slightly down for the quarter despite overall reporting appliances being in. Um, and this kind of follows a trend we've been seeing for the last two years. Basically, as this pandemic goes on, um, less or fewer employees are behind the perimeter going to shady sites or whatever being targeted with malware infections, which causes these. Perimeter uh, well, I, I, I'd, I'd say it a little differently, real, really quickly, just to be clear, you said perimeter, but no, this part of malware is really based on our network security controls. So, uh, and we do have a section in this report we'll get to on endpoint. I, uh, while the numbers we report in our endpoint product differ quite a bit from network, so we can't really directly correlate them. We actually don't think malware is down. Uh, overall. But if you think about it, malware targets users. We'll get to network attacks, which target services, network services, which is different. But malware targets users uh, because it typically arrives through email, which not necessarily, e you know, the scanning at the network doesn't happen when it comes to the email server, since those servers are often in the cloud. It, it, a lot of it happens when you are at your endpoint logging into O365 and you get it that way. And the other thing is they get it from browsing the web, from through through the web. And so where the endpoint is when it browses makes a difference to what sees the malware. So really our premise, which Mark was getting to correctly here, is, is that the pandemic means that for most knowledge-based companies, a lot of tech companies out there and many others, the user is at home. Since malware is following that user, you know, the perimeter is not getting the opportunity to see the email traffic if it's delivered through M365 or to see the web requests because all of those are happening at the home network where the perimeter isn't. So like, like Mark was getting to, we have seen malware down at the perimeter for many quarters in a row since the pandemic started. And I, I think it was pretty clear, uh, Mark, that before the pandemic, malware, like everything else, was ticking up every quarter. And it was during the pandemic it went down. But the clear thing we want to point out is we do not think malware is dropping. We just think it's less relevant to see it at the network right now because the network's typically at the office where the users are not. And in fact- And so, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say there's even another tidbit that kind of hints to the fact that maybe malware isn't down at all. Maybe it's up and uh, networks just aren't seeing it. And that's that uh, for this last quarter, 91.5% of the malware we detected arrived over an HTTPS connection, which is insane. So nine tenths of all malware arriving over a encrypted web connection in that case. And the reason that that kind of goes hand in hand with this malware trending potentially downward, at least in our detections, 
is that still the overwhelming majority of our customers, and I'd go ahead and extrapolate that to the industry, uh, doesn't do HTTPS inspection to break open that encryption at the gateway and inspect that traffic. And so now if malware is yeah, pivoting- we found out, I think we found on average, it's available to all our firewall customers. In fact, you don't even need a special license. If you have the firebox, you have it. But I think we found around 20% last time, I think Trevor said, around, you know, we get that data from only 27 or 20% of the, you know, 38 odd thousand fireboxes reporting in. So like you say, I think that translates to the industry too. But that was a huge number. I, that was a record for us, Mark, right? We have commented on this number getting higher, but 91% is, is something I had not seen before for sure. Yeah, it's absolutely the highest it has been. And again, when you like consider how much volume we're getting over these encrypted connections, like so malware that you would not see if you're not doing decryption, uh, and pair that with just the few amount of networks that are actually doing that, like I'd say that in general, malware probably is significantly up. It's just organizations aren't seeing it because they're not inspecting traffic at the perimeter. Like it may still be going through the perimeter for now as we're moving into a hybrid model for a lot of organizations around the world. And it's just, if you're not taking the time to set up that HTTPS decryption at your perimeter, you're now going to be missing all that. And now hopefully you have other layers behind you to back it up, like endpoint protection, EDR on the actual endpoint to try and catch it. But then you're basically putting all your eggs in one basket instead of using a layered security approach. And that's not the most ideal way to go about defending against these threats. You don't want to rely on catching it as it arrives on the destination if you have ways to potentially catch it well before then, too. So, yeah, that was a massive stat seeing it at 91.5%, definitely the highest we've ever seen it. Um, By the way, a common question is why? If, if all our fireboxes have this capability, why is it 20%? We, we, we think it's simply because, I mean, no matter what, turning on HTTPS decryption or TLS SSL decryption takes steps. Now, I think there's a difference between what customers perceive its complexity is based on the way vendors like us did it before versus what it really is, meaning, you know, a lot of people do it by trying to import a... Uh, you know, a special cert, an intermediary cert the appliance provides to all their clients. That's horrible. That's bad. That's going to make it hard. You're going to miss clients. There's going to be IoT devices you can't capture. But there are other ways to do it, which is more import a your your Active Directory, your Microsoft Active Directory, or your corporation's kind of intermediary CA cert to our product. And once you do that, you'd, all the clients are kind of covered through their connection through AD. So there's an easier way to do it. Uh, so I wouldn't be scared. I, I, I would try this. This is probably not as hard as you think. Having said that, there's also some reality to certain issues. Some some sites force you not to be able to add a, a, a new certificate to the chain, something called Cert Penny Mark could tell you all about. And there's also client, like when you're not in a browser, when you're using client applications, you know, Dropbox through the web might be perfect and we can capture all that, but Dropbox through the client might not let, might not use that, that cert that we can import or, or use from your, your organization. So there, the reason people don't use it as much is it does take some setup. But having said that, I, I think it's perceived 
difficulty to use has changed. It is easier now. We offer new exceptions, pre-made exceptions, and other mechanisms to make this easier for yeah. you. Yeah, it's one of those where it will take time, but the time investment on it, it directly equates to better security because now you have increased visibility into blocking these threats with the services that you've hopefully already configured and signed up for, basically. Um, and yeah, like Corey said, like it it does take time. It doesn't have to be a all at once kind of thing either. Like I would 100% not, not recommend enabling this feature across an entire organization all at once. This is something that you guinea pig with a small group while you work out some of the like uh, exceptions you'll have to add for the applications you commonly use in your organization and then roll it out to a larger audience. Um, but again, all of that time and investment directly translates to improved security. Uh, where you set this up. Um, so moving on to like a few of the specific threats that I think we should call out, like for time's sake, again, we go into heavy detail about various trends and like the top malware by volume and top malware seen across uh, multiple client networks. Um, but there's a few like standouts, I think, for individual threats we saw. And one of them that I thought was really interesting um, that Trevor, one of our analysts, did quite a bit of research into was this AMSI disable.a uh, signature effectively. Um, for those that aren't Windows security professionals, uh, AMSI is the anti-malware scan interface in Windows. And it's basically this engine that runs on any PowerShell script, VBA macro, JavaScript, basically anything that uses the Windows scripting hosts uh, will use this engine to look for potential malware or malicious activity in a script before it executes. And one of the things that we've kind of highlighted over the past few years is how evasive malware is becoming and how it's relying on these script-based attacks, these fileless attacks, uh, to carry out the bulk of their actions. And seeing these malware threats using this, basically going in and disabling AMSI before the ultimate payload comes through and executes is just the next evolution of that. It's kind of clearing the way for then, uh, let's say, power exploit, like a power exploit uh, attack to come in or a cobalt strike beacon, beacon to get set up and make it even more difficult to detect than it already was. Like we saw similar activity. If you watched our webinar or saw our discussion on the Kaseya attack, where part of that initial command was to go in and similarly disable a lot of protections using PowerShell in this case. Um, but one of the malware threats we saw at quite a high volume across all networks um, was like basically this way to bypass and disable AMSI before another script runs. Uh, pretty interesting seeing that in there. Uh, definitely check out the report for an example of exactly how that works too. And we actually yeah. found... Oh, oh, go ahead. ahead. I, I was going to say, we'll save this more for the end, but remember the whole point of this report isn't just to, to gawk at the trends and be, oh my God, it's so scary. It's to give you actions that can help. And in this case, EDR, endpoint detection response, uh, I'll wait so we can talk about it at the end. But of the endpoint protection services, I think almost everyone has some sort of basic antivirus or I think the, the new name for antivirus is EPP, endpoint protection. But EDR can be part of EPP suite, but it's a little more specific. And it's it's good at, at catching malware post-execution or, or malware that's using this sort of scripted technique. Because the script, there's, there's nothing illegitimate about PowerShell. There's nothing illegitimate about JavaScript. We IT people use PowerShell every day and every website you go to has JavaScript everywhere. Uh, what you need is a solution that pays attention to 
contextual rules when those things, when those scripts are running to try to figure out something that's a malicious power script, PowerShell script versus something an IT person's doing. And we can talk more about that when we talk about EDR at the end. Yeah. Um, other malware trends. So one of the numbers that we track every quarter is what we call the zero day malware number. Um, I think Corey is finally done getting in fights over Twitter on what we mean by zero day malware. Um, but <laughs> for those that are still a little confused. To be fair, we all, yeah. It's zero day exploit is the, the term that existed much longer. <laughs> Correct. So zero day exploit being a unpatched vulnerability in like an application or a tool. When we say zero day malware, we're talking about malware that doesn't have a signature. So it gets past signature-based anti-malware services, either because it's brand new, like it's literally just coded up, hasn't had a signature yet, or more commonly, because the threat actor in this case has run it through a tool like a packer or a cryptor or some other evasion technique in order to make it get past signature-based protections. And these days, it's it's easier than ever to get your hands on one of those tools. Like I found one Cheap. available on GitHub yeah. called Amber that literally anyone can download and lets it get past a significant portion of signature-based anti-malware engines. And that's Ho hopefully all the ones in Metasploit are are there. But do you know? I I mean, there there. I think Shishka Ganai. I I always mess up the pronunciation. Ganai. I like Shishka Ganai better, though. Shishka Ganai, Shikata Ganai. You know, while that evasion can be applied to shellcode, too, you can run it on an executable, and it does a similar thing. It tries to, hopefully, by the way, you can write signature. I, I mean, there are rules that sometimes recognize the packing that some of these packers are getting or uh, have if, if they leave any signs. But a lot of them use complex things like stubs to kind of make the the packing when we say cryptor that one's not only packing but it, it it's using some a general type of encryption and let's call it too so anyways uh you know there you can definitely buy good ones and you can get a lot of open source and free ones they're they're not hard to find I really did like when you I think it was in Black Hat UK right after you found one that I think was open source that was or, amber yeah yeah, where you showed how easy it was to take a known threat, a threat that everything should have a signature for, and make it new again just by repacking it. And Ultimately, you might ask, though, like, the malware is the same. The unpacked payload is really yeah. can be the exact same thing it was before. And you might ask, like, why can't you just block that stub or block whatever is responsible for unpacking or decrypting it and then loading it up? And the reason is, like, they're, the people that develop these are smart, and they recognize that when it comes to anti-malware, it's a battle between you know efficacy and false positives and that once you start getting you know higher than one percent false positive rate you're going to have a lot of friction from your end users and a lot of pushback from them so a lot of um, anti-malware engines are designed in a way where they may potentially let through some legitimate malware at the expense of not having too many false positives and so when they develop these packers and their cryptors they design them in a way where it's really difficult to detect and block them without a whole bunch of collateral damage of legitimate applications there too. Like it would be relatively easy to write rules to block this style of activity, but you would potentially block a lot of legitimate applications as well, is what I'm getting at. So that's why they're so effective because it's hard to detect and block them without breaking everything else, basically. And we use packing encrypting often to describe this, but there's really actually lots of other ways to evade signature detection too. 
we're just kind of summarizing yep. one. So either way, uh, when it came to zero day malware for the quarter, it was actually down slightly, but it was still at 64.1%. And we say down because last quarter, uh, I guess Q1 was insane at 73 or 74% or so. It's like I three quarters of all malware. And so while this is technically down, it's still you know two thirds of all malware out there getting past signature-based detections. To, to me, once we reach the half wave point for this, you know, if half of the malware that that's arriving at the network is getting past signature detection, it really makes our point for us, which is, you know, this number goes up and down and it's interesting to us. But at this point, it should be clear what we're trying to tell you with this number is any solution that only pays attention to signatures or is heavily focused on signature-based detection rather than the more proactive detections, which are either doing things like behavioral analysis or machine learning or are leaning towards the EDR side of things, looking for uh, signs of the malware actually executing, uh, living off the land contextual rules uh, or, or even process behavioral analysis when processes first spawn. And, and, and I think I already said inline memory exploit detections. Uh, so the point is, if you're not using a, a endpoint malware detection and a network malware de detection solution that do those kind of more modern techniques as well, you're you're going to miss everything. Signature detection is okay to keep around. It's very quick at getting rid of the noise, but uh, it is not sufficient at all. When Mr. Uh, Semantic five CEO five years ago said signature signatures are dead. This is this was what he was talking about. Exactly. Um, and then final bit from the malware section. When it came down to it, uh, we blocked 438 malware payloads per appliance reporting in, which like that's honestly, it's a pretty sizable number. But again, when you take into account the number of networks not doing HTTPS inspection, like this is probably closer to over a thousand payloads attempting to get through perimeters every single quarter, which is a lot of malware to be arriving in your network. And definitely shows why you should be not just setting up these appliances, but setting them up correctly I, with the right visibility. I, I would rather have a Firebox stripping all that so I don't have to rely only on my user training not to uh, open that attachment or click that link. It's 100%. just better to have it stripped. <laughs> yes. Which we do, by the way. The reason we see this is because we are actively stripping it, or, or hopefully, depending on their setting, that's what they did. We at least found it. I guess in theory, yes, we could detect it and they could set their Firebox config to let them to allow it through. So you're right. This is allowing reports, not necessarily <laughs> blocks. We don't prevent people but, but, from but shooting themselves But by, themselves by default, <laughs> by default, that shouldn't be the case. No, so hopefully exactly. you haven't changed the default act action on GAV and, and the other anti-malware. default or... and common sense, that is not the case. <laughs> Um, so for time's sake, moving on to the network attack section of the report, this is where we go over the intrusion prevention service. So basically our signature-based IPS that looks for attempted exploits of known vulnerabilities in applications, whether they be like a web app that you expose to the internet on, running on a web server or a client that accesses something over the network. So your web browser, a application like Dropbox, really anything that has some form of network activity could potentially have a vulnerability through that network activity that we can detect with IPS. And for the quarter, we actually saw a substantial increase in detections, uh, even when compared to quarter one. It's been trending up for the last like two years now, basically. Um, but for quarter two of this year, we had just over 5 million or so detections 
across all of our networks, which was a 22% increase from the previous quarter, which was already up quite considerably from the quarter before. Like we had this one big spike back in like 2016, 2017, I think. And they kind of got back to a normal baseline. But ever since then, it's just been creeping up and creeping up faster and faster now, which basically like it kind of one of the explanations we have for this is, you know, even if people are working remotely, you've still got all these web apps and things exposed at your potentially office or colo or some other location that you still need your employees to have access to. And that means that cyber criminals are continuing to hammer away at those as well. Yeah, I mean, things like your RDPs or your VPNs or your uh, web services, those, you know, even when employees moved home, that's still in the cloud at the office or wherever, all places the firebox can be. Uh, so network services, when it's when it's when the exploit is about attacking a networks uh, uh, incoming network service, that's where it's going to go. By the way, do you know this will also catch some of the attacks uh, from users going out? Like if there's a vulnerability in a browser and they go out. Uh, but in this case, with all the users out, we think this is probably more server-based. I did want to point out for all these numbers, it's it's good to know. I can't remember. I, I shared it a bit before, but it's about 38,000 fireboxes reporting in. Uh, our active fireboxes changed quite a bit, but really that's anywhere from 11 to 13% of the fireboxes. There's a lot more out there. Let, let's say, just to make my math easy, it's probably... 10% of the boxes, it's actually a little more than that. But in reality, if we if we were getting data from all the fireboxes, that would be more like 50 million a quarter. Yeah. And same with malware, multiply our malware numbers by 10. Exactly. But even then, it still comes out to, uh, for network attacks, around 137 attacks per appliance over the quarter, um, which, again, it's it's good that you've got these services enabled to stop those from potentially succeeding against endpoints. And it was a pretty busy quarter when it came to network-based attacks as well, with just all of these vulnerabilities we've had discovered and disclosed over the course of the year. Like the Exchange Server vulnerabilities proxy logon came out just at the tail end of quarter one. Uh, they were probably heavily impacted uh, through quarter two. Um, quite a few other web app-based vulnerabilities throughout the quarter. Now the Kaseya VSA ones that got patched as well later on in the year. Like it's been a popular year for attackers going after these exposed web applications that, you know, in general, you have to expose to the internet for them to be used. I wouldn't say all of them. There's still quite a few that you could absolutely throw behind a VPN to secure more than exposing it directly. But it's kind of tough to do that with your email server, at least as an example. Um, so when it came to um, the top 20 or the top 10 uh, new or detections by volume for IPS, we actually had quite a few new ones, which is rare. So for our top 10 lists, they generally don't fluctuate a whole lot uh, in terms of the individual threats we see. More so, yeah, it, it, more malware, so for network than, yeah, I would say. Network attacks like rarely change a whole lot, but we actually had a decent amount of turnover. And while we say new, a lot of the vulnerabilities are pretty old still, like five yeah. to eight years. Um, new, new to the top 10 list, but that is definitely a trend we find that the stuff that shows up in volume isn't proxy login. Proxy login, if we search for it beyond the top 10, it showed up. But this speaks more towards probably the automation of both attacking and of auditing in, in that you know, the newest stuff isn't always in the automated check for this mass scan exploit in your botnet. 
the old well-known things are are typically there. So when it comes down to volume, we don't see a lot of modern like uh, vulnerabilities found within the last few months or a year even, with some exceptions. Yeah, I mean, to give you an example, one of the new ones was the vulnerability in the open EMR platform, so electronic medical records database. Uh, while you would think this is pretty topical considering the current state our world is in uh, with our reliance on healthcare, the vulnerability itself was from 2013. Yeah, it showed yeah, up on this old. list. I'd say of all the old vulnerabilities, like this is one of the potentially more possible ones to actually hit just by nature of the healthcare system and I was the gonna say potentially out-of-date systems that they're running. Yeah, they, they don't, because of the nature of some of the systems in those organizations, they simply can't patch as often. Yeah. I mean, it's difficult to, when a, patching a system could be the difference between life or death, like it's difficult to get the correct change approval and testing and stuff to do that, assuming that whoever develop that system is even still in business to help support you if something goes wrong. But so that's an example of an old one. Uh, there was actually a pretty relatively new one in the top list as well. Uh, there was a 2020 vulnerability in a PHP archive library. So PHP being a server side scripting language, still really popular on websites, on the internet and other web apps. Um, and there was a vulnerability in the archive uh, library used when it interfaces with its own package management system. So these days, uh, developers you don't write all the code themselves. They'll use libraries and packages from package managers, open source uh, plugins, basically, they can use to take care of the bulk of the work while they kind of glue it all together. Um, and PHP is no exception to that. They have their own package management library. This particular flaw uh, was actually a similar flaw was disclosed in a talk at Black Hat in 2020 on how to attack this particular uh, library uh, for a arbitrary file overwrite vulnerability. So basically you can control based off of the contents of a library where that file will get overwritten to. Uh, the fallout for that could be potentially overwriting like the authorized uh, keys file on a Linux system and inserting your own SSH key, which will let you log in, potentially overwriting a user password file, depending on what uh, level of privileges the the process that's using this is running at. Like You can imagine if you can overwrite any file on a system, there's a whole lot of damage you could do. And ultimately, like at a minimum, you could drop a web shell and then gain shell access to that host. So interesting seeing a brand new one pop up there. If you want to see more on it, the uh, the talk was given by Sam Thomas at Black Hat 2020. There's a YouTube link in the report itself that'll take you right there as well. Um, so let's see. Uh, when it came to uh, geographic detections for network attacks, it was actually pretty interesting. When we look at it just on a total volume level, APAC accounted for just 2% of all network detections, which is nuts. When we look at it per Firebox, it goes up a little bit. Um, but it seems like the overwhelming majority of these attacks are targeting the Americas and EMEA. And when we look at the most widespread threats, you'll see like in a chart we have in the report, Canada, US, and then a few European countries tend to account for the most networks that hit these detections as well. That, that said, I will say you mentioned it went up a little. When we wait to, towards the fireboxes in these regions, APAC went from 2 to 11. So it, it's still small compared to the Americas. But I will say 
we didn't always, it, it took us a while to realize we should weight these regions by the number of devices. And APAC has looked quite different based on that. If I remember right, there was a quarter where APAC kind of rose to the top during a quarter. And it wouldn't have been apparent if we didn't do that weighting to account for the number of devices that we're getting data from in that region. Yep, 100%. So interesting seeing that, though. Um, the rest of the network section, I know we glossed over a whole lot. There's actually quite a bit of additional analysis in there and some of the other vulnerabilities. So definitely head back to that. Uh, but for time's sake, let's chug on to the DNS section now, which comes from our DNS firewalling service, DNS Watch. Uh, its primary job is to neuter links from like phishing emails where instead of a user clicking on a link and going to the ultimate malicious domain, uh, we'll through DNS redirect that connection over to our black hole instead where typically they'll get like a, oops, you clicked on a fish alert, uh, maybe a little game in there on how to spot a phishing message in the future. Um, and then some solace as the IT administrator to know that you block someone from falling for a fish at that point. Uh, when it came to DNS detections or DNS, uh, malicious connections over uh, blocked with this service, uh, we actually had an all-time high this quarter. So in total, we had 7.2 million blocked connections in quarter two, which was, I think it was like a 281% increase from the previous quarter. Yeah, sounds like there's more clickers this quarter. Might be time to up your security awareness. Yeah, training. and I'd say this, honestly, it kind of goes along with where we were at for the year with some organizations moving to. So DNS Watch primarily, while we do have mobile clients for it, it is primarily a service triggered off the firebox itself, so the perimeter. And so as folks are potentially moving to hybrid models, as schools start up as well, or uh, as universities uh, get students back, like that tends to be where we see the majority of our clicks, the majority of our detections. So it makes sense to see it go up. 281% is a massive jump, though. So like you said, Corey, I think it's time for everyone just to redouble their phishing awareness training for the year, maybe. Um, we do keep track of three main categories of block connections. Uh, so compromised domains being a otherwise legitimate website that an attacker abused or compromised to host something malicious. There's malware domains, which are typically websites either hosting malware or participating in the command and control infrastructure for it. And then phishing domains, which, as you might guess, are domains associated with phishes. Um, and while there's quite a few new ones for the quarter... Those trout domains scare me. I never like going near the trout. They're just kind of gross. Much prefer salmon domains. especially slimy. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. God. <laughs> Hopefully, fishing with a PH. Dumb, yes. dumb Corey dad jokes aside. There were a few I wanted to point out. So first off, there was a subdomain of archive.org uh, that we actually ended up having to block on the compromised domain list because it was hosting a remote access Trojan on it. So archive.org is the web archive, the Wayback Machine, it's also called, where it will periodically go through and take snapshots of web pages that you can then go back in time and see exactly how like neopets.com looked in 2001, for example. And we actually found a rat hosted off of this one subdomain where it looked like it was a file store for some of the files picked up during this archiving as well. So in other words, archive.org took a snapshot of a different compromised domain and yep. thus got compromised. Exactly. <laughs> Which, it's interesting. Like, it, it makes sense. Yeah, it makes it sense. It totally does. <laughs> and so uh, we were able to at least block access to that one by blocking the subdomain. Um, obviously archive.org is otherwise legitimate. Like you and I use it all the time to, I mean, crap, look how watchguard.com used to look 10, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. 
our stuff used to be at a different blog and to remember the things we write, I have to sometimes go to the Wayback Machine. Yep. Um, but uh, in this case, it, because of its functionality, it actually ended up hosting a rat. And I'm willing to bet this is not the first or last time we'll see something like that pop up on one of these archive pages. Um, a few others, when it came to malware domains, there's one associated with the Lemon Duck malware family, uh, which over the past few months or years or so has actually been targeting Microsoft Exchange servers to drop web shells. So uh, similar activity to what we saw with those proxy logon attacks uh, back in late March, leading into the beginning of this quarter, seems like going after uh, services that have to be exposed to the internet, like Exchange Server, remained a pretty popular tactic by threat actors. Uh, last one was a phishing domain that was a, I, this one was one that was tough, could have been compromised website, could have been phishing. We kept it as phishing in this case because it's a subdomain of fontawesome.com. Uh, so fontawesome being a, a website where you can license out uh, web fonts for applications or uh, websites, things like that. And they actually were hosting a, unbeknownst to them, a phishing campaign off of one of their subdomains because of the file upload capability that some of their users have. So that was an interesting one to see pop up as well. Moving on then, I guess, do we want to say some takeaways for uh, Firebox feed? Yeah, I mean, the Firebox feed, we mentioned EDR before endpoint detection response. I, I would definitely, you know, that script-based attack, and we'll hear about more script-based attacks in two seconds, uh, but these script-based attacks can often be completely living off the land. They don't drop files. EDR is the type of solution that will catch that. A lot of EPP is paying attention to classic files, registry entries. There's other stuff it does that can sometimes catch other malware, but EDR is really focused on the stuff that gets passed. It's your safety net to catch some of these leaving off the land attacks. So that's good. I would also say for DNS Watch, we, we, we keep talking about uh, security awareness training. So think about that. But it is worth quickly, you know, this section, uh, we acquired a company called Panda Security, so we also now have endpoint information. It doesn't record data in the same way, so we don't, as the Firebox feed, where we get people to opt in and send stuff. So it's a little different what we get and how often we get it. But we did get data this quarter for, or in this quarter's report that represents the full first half of 2020. So why don't we cover that really quickly? Yeah. And if I. Yeah, if I had to pick a big standout for it, it's that if you remember from quarter four 2020, we discussed how much script-based attacks were skyrocketing that year compared to previous years. And when we look at just the first half of 2021 now, uh, they're already around 80% of the entire total for the previous year. So at this pace, they're going to way blow past last year's detections too. So these script-based fileless malware attacks aren't slowing down at all. Like attackers are still focusing on living off the land attacks, abusing tools built into our operating systems to carry out these attacks. Yeah, and then we also, when you're looking at the data about the script-based attacks, another thing we measure on the endpoints is browser-based attacks. So that could be uh, web exploit kits that exploit vulnerabilities in browsers. One of the things uh, you found and you wrote in your this section of the report, Mark, is the fact that uh, by the way, browser attacks are still a fraction of script-based attacks, so it's not high, but there's still significant amount of them. But the funny thing is uh, Internet Explorer represents a very small browser market share right now. I think 5%. it's only 5% between people moving to Edge and a lot of people just not liking Microsoft's browser and installing Firefox or Chrome. It's not much. And yet the majority of browser attacks were targeting IE. 
So I think the takeaway there is maybe get off IE, uh, even if you want to stick with Microsoft Use Edge. I also, this section is good to read. You should go check it out because we do talk about ransomware is on the rise. Uh, you know, it, at the rate it's going, I think we it's it's it will reach 150%, I believe, of 2020's total. Uh, by the you know, by the end of the year, at, yep. the, at, the, at the end of the year, so it, it's growing at least you know fifty uh, percent. So that's good. The last section before we share a few other takeaways, I, I will say, Mark, you did a fantastic section on the Colonial Pipeline attack. I feel like you and I have covered that both on the podcast and more importantly, we have a webinar that I think goes into great detail that you and I did together with the timeline. So rather than talk about here, I'd encourage you to check out the report if you want to know more about that. It was a surprisingly simple attack and it shows how basic things like MFA and having a disaster recovery plan help. So it's a good attack to understand in detail and to understand the political ramifications and fallout of this. But for that, I'd, I'd go check out our webinar. I, I think it had a lot of good data detail. So I don't know if you want to end with a few takeaways. Yeah, and I guess the first one you already mentioned was EDR is key going forward. Um, so basically, you don't want to just rely on network secure on your perimeter, potentially because your endpoints aren't going to be behind that perimeter throughout the give any given day. Now, you may not be inspecting traffic as well. And EPP on its own will do a good job of blocking a lot of threats, but even that isn't going to be sufficient too. EDRs, that comes in post uh, attack or post execution. I, I sometimes call it, I know more people don't behaviors love this, and existing processes EDR to try more about and shut that down detection, before it becomes a major right? Event. EPP is about blocking this malware from ever happening, and it probably does it for a big majority of malware that tries to reach the system, but stuff gets by. And EDR is what will, one, tell you you have a potential breach, and two, you know, we, we have capabilities to remediate it automatically to actually kill processes and stuff, but we'll help you remediate it. So think of it as kind of your eyes into breach detection for any malware that has made it through your gates. Yep. Uh, next takeaway is really just shore up holes and remote access. So. We understand that you do need to allow potential access to systems, uh, web apps, whatever, but when you don't have to, do not expose that directly to the internet, especially with things like RDP, where an attacker can just sit there and brute force their way past usernames and passwords and gain access to that system. And even if you have MFA protecting that, that's not often always enough because there could be a vulnerability they're able to exploit and just bypass that entirely. And so instead using things like a VPN or a clientless VPN through an access portal, uh, can help still provide this access and protect it with multi-factor authentication and single sign-on to make it even easier for your users too. Um, all at the same time, protecting you from these uh, resources just being exposed to whatever attacks people want to do. And for the final tip, we're not going to give this time it deserves, but Business Continuity Disaster Recovery, acronym BCDR, Companies don't spend enough time on ensuring they have this plan. Some some may not have it at all. Some may not have updated it for a while, and some don't test it. And the truth is, we do a lot. You can do a lot to predict to prevent a lot of attacks, but things will eventually get by. 
And really, security isn't about blocking everything. It's making sure that your business can continue operating and not lose money, time, and the business itself because of these attacks. You know, Colonial Pipeline shows us why you need a BCDR plan to keep a pipeline going, even if a network was infected. The rise of ransomware definitely should illustrate why you need this. So if you, one, don't have a BCRD plan, do it. If you haven't touched that plan for a while, go to it and maybe update it and run a tabletop exercise to see if it covers what you need. Yep. But it's a great report. We recommend you go read it for a lot of other detail. It's watchguard.com slash security report if you'd like to check it or the executive summary out. Definitely go check it out. We skipped over a ton for time's sake, so there's plenty more good tidbits in there for you to go dig out. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at X-O-R-R-O underscore. Corey is at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week.